Okay, in a second, I'm going to have the children coming up, and as they're doing that, um, this morning, I, we're going to be in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, 1 and 2 specifically today, but the next two weeks, we're going to be in the first chapter of Genesis, and I don't know if you grabbed it on the way in, but I've got the text printed out, um, those first three chapters, that has um, some word, I mean, really important words. We're going to be talking about work. And if you really want to see how amazing and powerfully God speaks about work in those first chapters of Genesis, I really recommend that you get one of those. So if you don't have one, um, you can grab one, or we've got some guys back there. I see, uh, actually, I don't see the guys, but Ian's back there. Um, Ian, could you kind of help out? If you, could you raise your hand if you do not have that text of Genesis? Because um, I think you will profit greatly from having that and from following along. If you, if you don't, I really, you know, you can underline some words in your Bible. But I do want to invite the children to come up, grades, you know, kindergarten to like grade six. If they would come up and sit on stage with me, we're going to chat with them for a minute because this is fifth Sunday. And if you didn't hear it, we do have nursery. I know the email went out that said we don't, but we do have nursery for the little ones who go upstairs. So if you have a little one, feel free to, to run them over. Oh, wow, we've got a big crowd. Nice shirts. Got the cat shirts going. I like your boots. Little weight. No, we kind of fill the whole stage out. Yeah, maybe? Good to see you guys. Hey, this morning we are going to look at the very beginning of the Bible where it talks about how God created everything. And he also designed and created each of you. Do you know that? He loves you. He created you. So I want to talk for a minute. I want you to help me with something because I've got some objects up here that people created, (coughs) excuse me, or invented. I want you to tell me, because anytime you create or make something, you make it for a purpose. So I don't know who first created one of these, but what's the purpose of this thing? To what? Yeah, put water or hopefully milk, right? Milk or Mountain Dew, Kool-Aid, huh? You have at school, and they like milk is what goes in these. Okay, good job. How about this one? What's this called? Scissors. And what's the purpose of scissors? Yeah, cut paper and cutting stuff. You'll have to tease Christy Wright um, if you would, because several years ago we went on a mission trip to Mexico, and the Wrights were on that trip, and most of us didn't have very good Spanish. Tim had enough to dabble in it with the people we were working with. And enough to say really funny things. And one day we were in our small groups with our children. And I was next to him. My back was to Tim. I would sometimes listen to the Spanish he would say and try to use it uh, to help me. And so that day we were doing a craft. We were doing a craft where you cut with scissors along the lines. And so Tim wanted to tell them in Spanish, cut on the lines. Which would be, I don't remember the word cut, but the word for line is linea. linea? But instead of saying linea, he accidentally said niña, which means a little girl. So he said, cut the little girls. So all the little, I, I just, I heard him and all the little group, girls in the group started kind of backing up. It was very funny. So say something to Christy right about that. But it's for cutting paper, not cutting people, right? Your hair. Oh, or your hair, but not your sister's hair. Um, I've had that experience in our family where one of the girls cut the other girl's hair. Uh, that was interesting. But what about this? What are these called? Tongs. And what are they for? Salad. Yeah, grabbing hot things, like if you're cooking hot dogs. Okay, good job. Salad. What about this? 
And what's this for? To break stuff. No. <laughs> to, for nails, for nails. Okay, not breaking stuff. It's not for your sisters or brothers. Oh, you broke an acorn. An acorn's okay, but nothing else breaking. Okay. And what about this? What's this called? Okay, and what's this for? Okay, it's for rain, right? So everybody, whenever something gets created, they always create it for a particular purpose. So here's what I want to, to leave you with. God created all of you, and we're, we're going to talk about work this morning. You guys are a long ways from work. But God made each of you, he designed you for a special kind of work. And so my prayer is that you will find in the future, it's a long ways off, the thing he's designed you for. God's designed some of you to be doctors, some of you to be farmers, some of you to be at home with the kids, some of you um, to be a policeman or in the fire department. I mean, there's nurses, there's a teacher, there's so many things, okay? So I just want you guys to remember that everything created has a purpose, so hopefully in 20 years you probably won't remember this. A principle that, that what you want to do is you want to find out what God created you to do and do that, okay? So, all right, are we good? I hope that made sense. There are snacks over here, some things, and there's probably not enough. So if there's not enough, I actually, I actually pre- am prepared for that. So grab that, grab a snack, take it with you. If you've got a brother and sister, if they run out in the baskets... I actually have a stash. Don't tell your parents this. I've got a stash under here, okay, that if there are not enough, that I've got some. And if you've got a brother or sister, do you want one more? Three. How many? Is that good? Okay. We're all good? Okay, are we all good? Here, Jen. That's for later, though. Okay. Um, We are going to be in the book of Genesis. If you want to open your Bible to the first page of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1, while I put this stuff back. And we are talking about work today. And I'm very excited about this. Um, right before I hit the work thing, one more thing. We had the missions conference. We had two weeks. Got to hear from a lot of different missionaries, especially some of our closer-to-home ones, which was really cool. Um, just want to remind you, in the past, we have had you know, a card where you wrote down how much you were going to give, and you tore it off and turned it in. Um, a lot of those weren't getting turned in the last few years, and so we were like, we're not sure of the point of that. Um, but just want to remind you, the four responses we asked for you to be praying about picking one was going, welcoming, sending, and mobilizing. And under the sending is something that all of us can do, that, which is giving, leveraging some of our income, our resources towards the missionaries that we support. So I want to remind you, just because you're not tearing off a card, that to, to continue to do that. If you give, keep giving. Um, encourage you every, every year we try to think about, do we increase that? Um, t- if you don't give, really challenge you to do that. So just that reminder. So... Finally, get to do this series on work. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time, a very long time, and I'm really excited about it. And here's part of the reason I think it's so important. Um, recent research has shown us a couple of things related to work. The number one, the vast majority of Americans are not satisfied in their work. 
Um, I'll tell you the percentage next week, but the vast majority are dissatisfied in their work. Um, I saw a guy with a shirt that said this, um, you don't have to be crazy to work here, they'll train you, okay? And, but I saw him on a weekend. I doubt he wore that at work. He was just wearing that probably when he was away out of town. But most people are dissatisfied. Not only that, a Christian researcher has, was specifically was talking to Christians and found that a large percentage of Christians do not believe, they question whether their work has any eternal value. They might feel like, okay, I can work and I can give money, and the money I give is to people who have an eternal value, make an eternal impact, but I'm not sure that my work in and of itself has eternal value. And I think that's why the common idea that people in ministry are doing really important things, but everybody else maybe not, because people aren't sure that their work has eternal value. Um, some of the questions that came out of the research is people saying, this are, these are Christians, like, I'm, I'm not sure, does God really care about my work? Does he really care about it? And at the end of the day, does my work really matter to him? Just not sure about that. And I want you to know that the answer to that is yes, and that's why this series we're calling Your Work Matters. Um, is that on? Okay, we're at that. It will come up soon. That Your Work Matters. That's why we're calling it this. Um, that's the reason for the title. And this topic is important not only because of that, but for another reason too that a large percentage of our lives are spent at work. For the average adult, we spend 40% of our time waking hours at work, 40%. But not only, that's a lot of time, but I want you to look at this. If, from, if you're a church-going person, from age 25 to 65, you will spend 2,266 hours sitting out here in a worship service. During those same 40 years, you will spend 96,000 hours at work. That's a huge difference, is that not? A really huge difference. And so, should we not be speaking to work from up here? I mean, the Bible does. We're going to see in the next six weeks. But should this not be something, a topic that we're talking about? Because the Bible does talk about it. So, as we enter this series, here are some of my driving questions. You know, what does the Bible say about work? What value does the Bible put upon work? How can we think more biblically about our work? Um, how can we find better, me deeper meaning and satisfaction in our work? And perhaps more importantly is, how do we connect our faith and our work in a meaningful way, in a really meaningful way? And I want you to know that the Bible on work, it's, it's the, what it says is rich and compelling. We're going to see it from the very, from the very beginning. And it's, we're going to look at work almost like a diamond. We're going to take it hold it up, and we're going to look at a lot of different facets of it. And we're going to see the goodness and beauty of work and look at it in a lot of different ways. And in doing that, here's what we're going to find. That number one, that the Bible can shape a lot of how you think about and view our work. It can, give us, it can shape how we think about it, but also that the Bible can give us very practical, compelling, helpful models on how to actually approach my work in a very concrete kind of way. And that's what we're going to get to like in weeks three to six. And so the subtitles of the series really is, is it's, it's um, if I go back to that, it is connecting your work to God's work. That's what we're wanting to do. So the first two sermons, I'm going to lay a theological foundation. We're going to lay the groundwork. And then the four after that, I really want to try to build up upon, build upon that um, some very concrete models that come out of the Bible on how you can view and do your work that I think will be very practical. That's my goal is to get practical. 
And I want all of us to leave this series, myself included, that we all have a very deep conviction that God and that the Bible says absolutely everything about my work. It addresses my work in every way. So my hope is that you will find that your work matters to God and that God matters to your work. And I want all of us to leave this series seeing ourselves as ministers, that in my place of work, it is ministry, and that it's perhaps one of the greatest places or avenues where I can have kingdom impact. So let's jump in. Um, we're going to spend the next two weeks laying that theological ground for. And that may sound boring, but I want to tell you, it is not. What we're going to see today in Genesis 1 and 2, to me, is so exciting. All week, I couldn't wait to be able to teach to you from these first two chapters of Genesis. Um, as Charles Swindoll used to say, the Bible is as contemporary and as practical to me as this morning's newspaper. But we don't do newspapers much anymore, right? Times have changed. So it's as contemporary and practical to me um, as my daily news feed. And so I get out my phone right now and I, I, I swipe right and there is the daily news feed. I almost took a cap, screen capture yesterday to put up there, but it was really depressing stuff, so I decided not to. But the Bible's just as contemporary and practical as that. And I, think you're, I hope today you see that. And here's what to me is amazing, is that the Bible begins talking about work in the very first pages. From the very beginning, God is addressing the topic of work. And he strategically lays a foundation of how we look at work in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in the story of his creation and of the fall. And so this morning, we're going to look at those first two chapters, and I want to zero in on God. We're going to look at God. Next week, we're going to look at, at us, at mankind in Genesis. But we're going to start with God. So um, we're going to read here in a second in chapter... Um, I want to do that right now. Let's read. So I want you to stand. I'm going to be reading off the sheet if you don't mind. If you've got it, I encourage you to follow along because you're going to see a lot of words for work on here, a lot of different words. And I just want you, they're in blue. I just want you to pay attention to how much God talks about work in Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm going to read Genesis 1, 1 down to 2, 3, I think. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're going to get a little more into 2 in a minute. So this is what God says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit with seeds in according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Brief, be fruitful, and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds. And God saw... That it, did I skip something um, along? Where was I? <laughs> now I got lost. Now, what verse was I in? 25. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And this is the word of the Lord. Boy, I could use a glass of water after that. But that's the word of the Lord. Is that not powerful? Just that story of creation? So... You may be seated. Can we say amen to the word of the Lord? Amen. So we're going we're gonna to look at, we're going to scan over one and look a little more closely at two. But in chapter one, it's taking a wide angle view of God creating the, the universe, of him fashioning and forming the heavens and the earth. Um, look at chapter one, verse one and two. Look at on the, in the text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. The Hebrew is Tohu va bohu. Could you say that? It sounds cool. Could you say that with me? Tohu va bohu. Good job. Um, that means to be barren and uninhabited. Barren and uninhabited. The New American Standard translates it this way. The earth was a formless and desolate emptiness. 
God created a world, but it was in a chaotic state at the very beginning. As one commentator said, it was an alien wasteland. And to me, the two words that best describe that creation are at the bottom in the red. That when God created it, it was unformed and it was unfilled. Unformed and it was unfilled. Um, And so here's what we see. Over the next six days, God is going to roll up his sleeves and he's going to go to work forming and filling his creation. And so on the first three days, that's exactly what God does. He, fill, he forms the earth. He creates structures. He divides and separates things. He creates structures um, that he can put things in. And then on days four, five, and six, he forms, I mean, he fills what he forms. So he fills it with sun, moon, and stars. He fills it with living creatures and living things. So God is forming and filling, working hard for six days, hard at work, forming the earth, filling it up. And on the seventh day, we're told that he ceased from his work. That's really what the Hebrew word Shabbat means there. It just means to cease or to stop. It's not that God got tired and had to rest and take a break like we do. He just ceased from his work. And so one author has summarized Genesis 1 this way, that we see God hard at work taming his newly founded creation into a place that's hospitable for life. And then we get to chapter 2, and especially verses 4 to 25. We see God actively and much more intimately involved in His creation. And here, they, it actually zooms in, and we get to see God intimately at work, forming and creating hum- human beings, and forming their garden home for them. And we'll talk more about that next week. This place that, um, that He's going to live. So we see Him more intimately involved in chapter 2 doing these things. But when you look at this and you look at the blue words, and I'm going to hit these in just a second, um, here's what I want you to see in these first two chapters of Genesis, that God is a worker. God is a worker. And a lot of these words that are used, they are very physical and they're very earthy. That's what I really love about this. So let me hit these words. The one you saw the most in the blue, it occurs a lot in Genesis 1, is the Hebrew word asa. We'll get to that in a minute. Nine times it says made, nine times made. In 1.7, twice in 1.16, in 125, 126, 131, it's in 2.3, 2.4, and 2.18. And next week when we look at Genesis, it occurs two more times in the book, I mean in chapter 3 of Genesis. But it's the Hebrew word asa, which simply means to do something, to accomplish something. It is to make, it is to work, okay? By the way, you don't have to look at this now, but on the back I kind of have a code not a code, but a key that explains the, the definitions of these words. Because as you see in a minute, bless you, as we go through this, these words are really powerful. So asa occurs the most. Then we have another word that occurs eight times. It's in 1-1, It's three times in one twenty-seven about the creation of humans. It's in one thirty-one, two three, two four, And it is the word in English, creates. And you'll see it's the word bara. Bara means to create. Most often it means to create out of nothing. There's nothing existing. He speaks into existence out of nothing. The, another word that we see that occurs in chapter 3 when it's getting more intimate, I mean in chapter 2, sorry, in chapter 2, um, is a word that occurs three times. It's in 2728219. In a minute, I'm gonna, we're going to look at these verses a little more deeply. It's the Hebrew word, it's translated form, 
to form. It's the Hebrew word yatsar, which means to form or fashion something, and it was most commonly used of a potter who's forming clay into a vessel of some kind, a dish, a bowl, something. That's that word yatsar in chapter 2. It's used primarily of a potter. And then there's a word used one time in chapter 2, verse 22, at the creation of the woman. It says maid, which in English sounds like all the other maids we've read, M-A-D-E, um, but it's actually a different Hebrew word. And you can see it is, it's on that, the back side of this, then the Lord God made bana, a woman. And bana means to build or construct, to build or construct something. Um, and that's what's used of the woman. A couple of other words related to work. Um, in 2.8, again, I think it's on the front side. In 2.8, you see that God planted the Hebrew word nata, which is, just means to plant, pretty simple, as in planting a tree, planting a forest, planting a flower, planting a garden, planting vegetables. And then in 1.9, we see the word in English, it's makes grow. It's the Hebrew tzamak, which means to cause to grow, pretty simple. But I want to emphasize one word in particular. I think it's cool that God revealed this using several different words for work, but one word in particular that grabs my attention, and it's found in Genesis 2, 2 to 3. And Genesis, when you get to 2, 1 to 3, it's really a summary of week 1. Whoever put those Bible verse markings on there 500 years ago didn't necessarily do a great job. Probably the paragraph should end at 2, 3, and then in 2, 4, he's talking more about the creation of humanity. But you see the work three times in verses 2 and 3. Look, look at verse chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating bara that he had done asa. So three words there. But that word work that occurs three different times. And that word is really, really cool. It's the Hebrew word um, melaka. Can you say melaka? Melaka. Here's why I think that word is so significant. Because in chapter 2, 1 to 3, he is summarizing. God, God is purposely saying, I'm summarizing all the work I did in creating. And I'm going to use this word to summarize my work. I've used other words in here, but this is the word I'm going to use. It's melaka. And here's what's cool, because melaka, it refers to the work of a craftsman or an artisan, and it can be translated workmanship or craftsmanship. So the work of a craftsman or an artisan. Is that not profound? That when God is using one word to summarize all of his work, he's like, I just did the work of a craftsman, of an artisan. I think that's really profound. That God makes the world as an artisan or as a craftsman makes a masterpiece. How many of you have been to Silver Dollar City? Been to Silver Dollar City. Is that not a cool place? If you haven't been, you should go. Um, this sermon, by the way, is, is um, supported by Silver Dollar City, sponsored by them. Just kidding, just kidding. If I were, if you were to tell me I could go only go to one amusement park the rest of my life, take my kids, my grandkids, it would be Silver Dollar City. By far, hands down. And here's the reason. When I first went in the 70s as a child, they only had like two, two rides. One of them was the fire ride that really scares little kids at the end, the thing that happens. But uh, if you scare easy, don't do that one, the firehouse. But here's what I loved about um, Sodor City. And I didn't know when we were going what it was going to be. But you walk around and you see all of these skilled craftsmen who are doing trades that were done in the 1800s. 
Um, and they're demonstrating. You have these craftsmen, these craftswomen, and they're all artisans, and they're demonstrating their craft, and it is amazing to watch, right? You see candle makers and, and soap makers. You see basket weavers, women weaving cloth. You see wheelwrights, um, glass blowing. You see the blacksmith. That dude used to be really famous. He doesn't live anymore, but they used to advertise with him. I don't remember his name. Um, but you see all these things, and you get to watch all of that. And, I mean, the, the best one for me was the candy, right? Seeing them pull taffy or make um, brittle, which I, brittle, which I think is one of those pictures. But I want you to know that's the picture that God gives us in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, that he is a craftsman. He's an artisan who does masterful kind of work. Is that not a cool thing? I think that is so cool that that's the word God used to reveal his work. So in these two chapters in Genesis 1 and 2, with these various Hebrew words that's using, here's what God is saying. He's saying, I engaged in lots of different kinds of work, right? I was a creative and I was an artist. I, was, I did design work. I was a designer, an architect. I was an engineer and I was a builder. I was a zoologist working with animals. I was an architect an arborist, and I was an expert horticulturalist. That just means people who take care of trees and plant gardens. I, I put those words in for Skylar. He really appreciated it for service. He was a potter. He was an expert craftsman. He was an artisan. Again, he was a builder. And all that tells me is that God is a worker. And what I love about this, if you, again, if you're looking at Genesis 1 especially, 1, 1 to 31, at each step of his creating work, God affirms the goodness of his work. Seven times he says of his work, it is good. Look, you see it in verse 4, that the light was good. See if I can catch all these. I've got them in green to make it easy for me. Um, verse 10, he saw that it was good. In verse 12, God saw that it was good. In verse 18, God saw that it was good. And in verse 25, and God saw that it was good. And then in verse 31, God saw all he made, and it was what? It was very good. In Hebrew, to use a number, something seven times means it's perfect or complete. So by using seven, he's saying, this thing is perfectly good. It's exactly how I wanted it to be. It is really, really good. Have you ever made something, or you did some work, and when you finished, you wipe the sweat off your brow, you stand back, you look at what you did, and you're like, wow, I actually did that. And that's good. Have you ever had that? You're kind of satisfied. That's exactly what God does. He stands back. He admires it. He smiles. And he said, everything I just crafted as a craftsman is good. And I want you to see in all of this, here's why this is so significant. In all of this, God is affirming the goodness of work. And I want to point out one more thing about God and his work. It's in chapter 2. And I've been kind of holding my cards to the vest on this one. It maybe is my favorite part of what God is doing in Genesis. I just love what he's doing here with work. I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 7. He's talking about the creation of humanity here, okay? He's talking about the creation of humanity. 2, verse 7. Here's what it says. Then the Lord God, he formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And remember, that word yatsar means to form and fashion like a what? Like a potter. Potter taking clay, right? A potter taking clay. While the universe and most of what he did in chapter 1, he spoke into existence with humanity, the pinnacle of creation. He gets his hands in the dirt and like a potter with clay, forms and fashions. 
And then look at chapter 2, verse 8, the next verse, speaking of his creating of the garden. Now the Lord God had planted a garden. He planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he formed, the one like a potter that he yacht sarred. That word planted a garden, it doesn't say he could have spoken a garden into existence, right? Let there be a garden, and poof, there's a garden. He didn't do that. He what? He planted a garden. He planted a garden. Andy Crouch, in his book, Culture Making, he makes this observation. He says, after the first chapter's majestic and stately account, full of sweeping wide-angle shots, soaring vistas, Genesis 2 is an ultra-tight shot of a hand digging into the ground, digging into the ground. In other words, here's what is so cool about this. God gets his hands dirty. We could say he gets dirt under his fingernails. I mean, how many of you have gardened, which is 90% pulling weeds, right? And when you're done, you've got dirt under your fingernails, and it's impossible to get out. That's what toothpicks are made for, by the way. They're not for cleaning your teeth. It's for getting dirt from out from under your fingernails. God gets his hands dirty. And to me, this is really significant because in Genesis 2, we see God doing manual, this is what manual means, manual labor. Manual labor. He shapes humans from the dust, much like a potter, getting his hands dirty with the clay, and he plants a garden. In other words, God does blue-collar work. God does blue-collar work. And should we be surprised that God does blue-collar work? Because when God comes into creation in the form of Jesus, how does he show up? How does he show up? To the Greeks, okay, to the Greeks, they imagined if God were to show up in their world, he would show up as the great philosopher king. That's how he would show up to the Greeks. The Romans, what they dreamed of is they dreamed of the man who would show up as the just and noble statesman. That's what they dreamed of. But in the Bible, Jesus shows up, our God as a tradesman. He shows up as a tradesman. And according to Matthew 13, 55 and Mark 6, 3, for the first three decades of his life, for the vast majority of his life, Jesus was a construction worker. Isn't that cool? A trade he learned from his father. Tom Nelson says this, Jesus spent the majority of his life in a carpenter shop working in obscurity with sawdust on his hands and sweat on his brow. That Greek word that we, is frequently translated carpenter, not the best translation. It's the Greek word tekton. We get some English words from that. Architect comes from that. Technology comes from that word. And if you were to dig into that word and see what it means, it's probably betterly, better translated as a builder or a master builder. And here's why. Because a tekton was a general craftsman who worked not only with wood, they worked with stone and even metal on large-scale and small-scale projects. Not just wood, but stone and metal. During Jesus' growing up years, what had been a small town that had been destroyed in a, in a revolt, Herod the Great was rebuilding it as a great Roman city. It was only five miles from where Jesus grew up, and most scholars believe that he and his dad probably worked there daily, among other things, helping to build the city of Sepphoris. Jesus, the master craftsman, the tradesman. So here's what we learn from the first book of the Old Testament. The first chapter, Genesis 1. And what we learn from the first book of the New Testament, that God is a gardener, that he's a potter, 
that he's a builder. That no work task, no matter how menial, okay, and for those who might listen to this later, just audio, I'm doing that in quotations, no matter how menial, in human eyes, no work is beneath God. Nothing. Physical labor is God's work. And here's why that is so important. Because work in our minds is divided into two categories, right? We think of work in two categories. We think of knowledge work and we think of manual work. We think of white collar, we think of blue collar. Um, This is even in education. Steve and I were talking a couple months ago about work. And he said education divides that way. You've got liberal arts colleges and you've got technical colleges. That's how we divide workers. And this divide has been around since the fall, since humanity fell. Globally, throughout human history, people have believed that work that's with the mind is higher than work that's done with the hands. It's considered more noble. That's been that way in human history. And in all the great human civilizations, the important people, again, quotations, right? The important people stayed away from manual labor. They didn't work with their hands. It was seen as degrading. The Greeks and Romans thought work itself was dehumanizing. Such great thinkers as Xenophon, Socrates, Cicero, at least we've heard of a couple of those, they all said we should avoid work if possible. But if one had to work, the work you should do is work of the mind, being a philosopher, being a statesman, being an artist. Those were the things that you should do. By all means, stay away from manual-type labor, especially, they believe, stay away from working in the soil, which they considered the lowest form of work, working in the soil. To the ancient Greeks, soil was bad, the soul was good, okay? And this, way, this view held sway, it's, again, in human history, it held sway in old Europe, where the upper classes, so I'm getting quotations, right? The upper classes, the upper classes, did virtually no labor while the lower classes, in quotations, the lower classes, they were the ones who did the vast majority of the work and they were the vast majority of the people, probably like 95% of the people. In 1605, an Englishman named George Chapman wrote this, do nothing, be a gentleman, be idle. And you know, in Europe, people who had dark skin were looked down upon because that meant you worked outside. And the ideal in the upper classes, the nobleman or whatever, was to have white skin, right? Because that meant you were inside, just enjoying life. Think Downton Abbey, right? Think Downton Abbey. I'm not going to go into the why, but America's been a little bit different for much of our history. For much of our history. Blue-collar work was considered noble and a worthy profession. It was considered the backbone of our country for a lot of our history. But that's changed in the last few decades. Um, Today in the West, we've embraced what's called a knowledge economy, right? A knowledge economy that's more creative. I'm doing that in quotation marks as if all work is not creative. And it's more cerebral up here. And those kinds of jobs, they're held in higher honor and they're usually enumerated given more pay, right? More valuable. Um, Tim Keller, by the way, says something interesting. He says, that's the reason today especially A lot of young people, they go to college and they pick a career, not on how God has designed them, but they pick a career in what they think fits one of these categories where they'll get higher pay and there's more of a prestige. Does that make sense? 
though God may have gifted him another way. And he says the other thing that's happening in our culture, especially with younger people, it's the reason a lot of younger people don't work very much anymore because when you're a young person like I was, you throw newspapers, right? You work for a summer in a hotel smashing up rooms because they're building new ones, totally manual kind of labor because for a lot of young people, the prestige of that is so low they don't even want to do it. So he's talked about how it's really impacting our culture. And I want you to know that we really need to think of the value our culture puts upon different kinds of work because this divide is unbiblical. It is not biblical. And here's why we base our vision of work on the Bible and on the Word of God. Because in Genesis 2, God himself, I mean, think about it, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of the universe, he himself did manual type of labor. I'm going to show you more in more detail next week, but this divide between white collar and blue collar, it is false. It's a false one because in the Bible, God did both kinds of work. In Genesis 1, he's doing a lot of creative kind of mind work, thinking, architecting a universe, speaking into existence. In Genesis 2, he's doing more of the creative manual type of work, getting his hands dirty. God does both kinds of work. So only in the Bible is all work lifted up and elevated as valuable. And all workers are valuable equally, only in the Bible. All work has dignity with God. Is that not cool? That all work has dignity. And I want you to know, this view of work in Genesis 1 and 2, it was revolutionary in their time. This was absolutely revolutionary. There were thousands of creation stories all over the globe. I want to focus on one, on how they looked at work. Um, The Babylonian creation story. In that story, the gods were tired of work. And they talked to Marduk, the high god, and they said, how can we get out of work? And he says, I've got an idea. I'm going to create some creatures, and we're going to give them all of our work. And from the poem, this is literally what Marduk says. I will establish a salvage or a rescue. Man shall be his name. He will be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. This is true of all the creation myths. The gods don't work. They want to be at ease because work is beneath them. So they created humans as like cheap slave labor to do the work of, for them, to do all the work and then to bow down and worship them so that the gods can sit back, that they can be at ease, that they can drink the nectar of gods on their, their mountain, wherever that is, right? Mountain Dew. That they can eat the food of gods, chips, and I'm telling you, home garden grown, homemade salsa, Right? with your Mountain Dew, kicking back, watching a football game, right? That's what the gods do while humanity slaves away. But Genesis could not be more different than that. Unlike all of the other gods and all the other stories, this God, our triune God, he works. And he doesn't just work, he enjoys it. Each day he's just like, man, that is good. And that's good. Whoa, that whole thing? That's really good. I could show you a verse in Psalm 8 where it talks about that he delighted in creating, just the sheer joy of it. So the contrast between the Bible and all those other worldviews couldn't be sharper. And I want you to know, this was not just revolutionary in their times. It is revolutionary now in our culture and how we look at work. It's revolutionary. So let's wrap up. Here's how Eugene Peterson put Genesis 1 and 2. He said, God comes into view on the first page of our scriptures as a worker. We see God working in his workplace. 
This is so important. Our first look at God is not as an abstraction, this higher power or pure being, but as a creator making the workplace that all of us continue to work in. Isn't that cool? We worship a God who works. From the very first pages, from the very first verse of the Bible, the first words of the Bible, we see a God who works. We see a God who works. It's what he does. And what I love, and the reason I was highlighting these words in here, is he does all kinds of work. He creates. He forms. He crafts. He builds. He does potter work. He gets his fingers dirty in the earth. All of those kinds of work being divine activities and all those kinds of work being good. Being good. And what I love about this God is he, though he ceased on that seventh day, He's never stopped working. In John 5, 17, Jesus has a really profound thing in an argument with the Pharisees. He says this, my father is always at his work to this day and I work with him. And I work with him. We serve a God who doesn't just work at creation, he continues to work. And if God works, that means there is dignity in work. There's dignity in work. I hope you see that. Work was not beneath God, and so work should never be beneath us. God worked for the sheer joy of it, and we should also find joy in the work that he has given to us. So 12th, I mean, what, if I were to summarize this, it would be this. Your work matters. I want everybody here to know your work matters to God. It works. It matters. I mean, when I, I mean, I've been this way, I've been looking at this text since the summer. Uh, I was out at a place um, that gave me a chance to think. This week I've been thinking a lot of it. Is this not amazing to read this? Is this not amazing? Does this not just stir up joy in your heart? Like this excitement that, that the Bible is so insightful, that it's so practical, that it's so amazing, that the God we serve is so good, so true, so beautiful, that it gives me this version, vision of him and of what work is. Is that not like really cool? Can we like... Do a yay, God? Can we like be like, God, you are awesome. What an awesome vision of who you are and of what work is. So next week what we're going to do is we're going to go, we're going to look more into Genesis 2, a little bit of Genesis 3, and we're going to zero in on the people, on us who were created and find that we were created to work, that we were created to work. But I want to leave with one final question. Okay. It can be like, you know, this all sounds good, this Genesis 1 and 2. I think it's so powerful. Sounds good. But if, if work is so good, if it's really a blessing, why can it be so frustrating and unfruitful at times? If it's really so good, why do I have that experience? If all of this is true, shouldn't there be a little more soul satisfaction in my work? Why is that missing sometimes? And why is it sometimes that my work feels more like a curse than it feels like a blessing? Why is that, if this is true? And so to get the answer to that, you've got to come back next week. You've got to come back next week. So I want you to be here, because we're going to learn some more really cool stuff about work and the, God does, and the work God does. Would you stand with me? I would love to pray. To pray a prayer to this awesome God who works. So, Father, I thank you for the book of Genesis. I thank you for your revelation. I thank you for your word. I thank you how you show yourself as a worker, 
and how much it dignifies work, and you dignify all kinds of work because you did it all. And that nothing we do at work doesn't matter or is lower than anything else. It all matters. I'm so thankful that I worship and serve you, a God who works. So help us to value and really see our work the way you do. Not the way our culture sees it, but to see it the way you do. And I just pray over these six weeks that we will really capture your heart, not on work, but we'll leave with some models of how to think about the way we do our work in a way that makes a kingdom impact. So I pray this, Jesus, in your name, the master craftsman, the master builder, pray in your name, amen. So 12th, you are sent this week to work, and to work, I don't care what it is, when you're at work, work with your head held a little higher because you are imaging the very God, the creator of the universe who works and who enjoys it. So 12th, you are sent, go to work after, after today.